Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, 1 through 7 in the New American Standard. As a quick aside, if the demographic this morning looks maybe more like a men's Bible study than normal church, um, because of the conspicuous absence of a large segment of our women, I think I can allay fears that the rapture has not occurred. They're up at a retreat, and I'd encourage you that even as our time here goes forward, you'd be in prayer that God is fashioning deep, lasting, and redemptive work in the hearts of these dear women up at our retreat. To God's Word. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Thanks, Kevin. Good morning. On June 13th, 2000, I woke up at 3 in the morning with pain in my chest, pain going down my arm, pain up my neck. It took me 45 minutes to finally decide, well, I think I should wake my wife. And she took me into the emergency room and the ER nurse looked at me and said, well, you know, people your age, it's usually just indigestion, but we should probably check. And they put the leads on for the EKG and turns out, gee, I was having a heart attack. <laughs> so they immediately went into action to deal with something that was far serious than the nurse originally thought. It's common for us, isn't it, just physically to be unaware of what's in our hearts or in our lives inside, just from a physical point of view. And sometimes it takes going to a doctor and having them look inside to find out really what's going on. In my case, if they hadn't done the heart check, just given me maybe a couple Prilosec, go home, see you later. Uh, yeah, they would have seen me later in a body bag, I guess, huh? You see, spiritually, that's also true. Uh, we often think we're doing okay. You know, we're kind of getting through life and, and we're plugging away. And, you know, sure, we all have things we need to work on. 
we all need to grow spiritually. Yeah, that's true of everybody, though, right? And, and all, but sin really isn't that big an issue in my life. So just give me a couple of Tylenol or aspirin or whatever. In other words, a couple of biblical principles that are encouraging for me, and I'll go home and carry on with my life. Well, this is the way Israel was when Isaiah is writing his wonderful book, and in particular, chapter 5 that we're looking at today. Israel was pretty religious, you know. They went to the temple, they went to the feasts, they did the regular sacrifices. Overall, they were feeling pretty good about themselves. But God wanted to step into their lives and do a heart check, hook up the leads and do an EKG, and show them that their problems were a lot deeper. The sin was running a lot deeper into their hearts than they were facing, than they ever realized. You see, God knows that unless we face the reality of the mess we are inside and how sin has permeated everything we do, that we'll never learn to depend on him and his love and his grace and his power. We'll never be free to be the people he's called us to be. So our passage today is a wonderful opportunity to take a spiritual EKG, (laughs) to do a heart check so we can really know, really know God and his grace and fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to this passage and we look together in your word, may our hearts be open to look at what you want to tell us about ourselves. May you break through the denial that so often blinds us and the commitment we make to be okay, and may we let you penetrate more deeply. May your word penetrate to the very soul and spirit, the bones and marrow of our hearts, that we might be set free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to do a heart check here in chapter 5 of Isaiah God doesn't just pull out an EKG and put the leads on Israel. He actually has Isaiah begin by singing a love song. That's not very often pointed out here, but the beginning of this chapter is a love song as Isaiah begins. Why does it begin as a love song? Well, I think it's, it's to catch us off guard. It's to say, wow, there's There's love here. That's what I want. That's what my heart desires is real intimacy, real life. But then we begin to look and see what's messed up that intimacy with God and with one another. It begins this way. Let us sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved. It's Isaiah speaking about God himself as his beloved. And he says, let me sing a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. The word, one of the words he uses here, he uses two different words for beloved, but one of the words he uses here occurs 35 times in the Bible, 34 times in the Song of Solomon, (laughs) and once here. So the word that Isaiah picks out is one that's used for intimate, romantic relationship because he has that kind of relationship with God, uh, an intimacy with him that is so incredible and deep. And so he begins with this love song and it's to catch us and hope, 
hopefully get us to listen to what he's trying to say, because really the whole background of this story and this vineyard analogy he gives us is a misplaced love, a misplaced love. So let's look at what he says about the vineyard. It says in verse one, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the middle of it. I want to show you a picture of what is today an old vineyard in the Middle East and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. It's a picture that shows what he's describing here, that God chose the best vines. He chose us. He chose his people. And he planted those vines right where he wanted them, where they could be the most fruitful. And he built a wall around it. And he fertilized it, made it all ready. And he built a watchtower so he could watch over it so nothing could disturb it from the outside. So that it would be healthy and strong because what he longed for, it says, is precious fruits. And in fact, if you look at verse 2, verse 4, verse 7, the same word is used at the end of verse 2. It says he expected it to produce good grapes. Verse 4, when I expected it to produce good grapes, why did it not do that? Verse 7, he looked for or expected, that word for expected or looked for in your translation it's the same word, and it's a word that isn't just expected or it isn't just looked for. It, it has to do with this deep longing. He longed to see fruitfulness in the vineyard because that's what it was built for. Just like in Israel's lives and in our lives, you see, God longs for us to be fruitful, to not just be healthy plants, but to produce fruits. It's the same with us. God loves us just as we are. He plants us as a vineyard and he loves us as we are, right? Yes, he does. His grace is amazing. But sometimes, like Israel, we forget that God longs to produce fruit in us, that we might grow and change to be more like him. We forget that God is easily pleased, but never satisfied. Yes, he's pleased in us, easily pleased, but he's never satisfied. He, he orchestrates life and he strips us of the things that get in the way and the extra branches and he prunes us so that we might produce fruit, the fruit of godly character, the fruit of truly loving God and loving others. So God longs for that. He looks for that in our lives. And so he's planted us in a way that we can grow and become what we we're always created to be. But notice verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, judge between me and my vineyard. What, when I expected it to produce good grapes, why did it produce only worthless ones? In other words, inedible ones, grapes that were useless. In fact, the vineyard may have looked good from a distance, but as you get up close and you look, you see that the leaves are diseased, that it's a mess, that it's not healthy that their sins, they go deep in Israel's hearts that they are not willing to look at. So God's heart is broken because he longs to see fruitfulness and life in Israel, just like he longs to see that in us. And though we can, from a distance, look pretty good, on the inside, maybe things aren't so good. So in verse 7, it says, He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. 
for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In the Hebrew, this is a play on words. It says, God longed for mishpat, but behold, mispach. He longed for tzedakah, righteousness, but behold, tzedakah, a cry of distress. God's heart is broken because what he sees is a mess. So he now hooks up the spiritual EKG and says, when I look closely, when I look at what's really going on in my vineyard, there's actually, and and I do a heart check and I, I see six things, six deeper sins that are there, six blips on the EKG that need to be looked at that are problems as he does a heart check for Israel. And as we look at these together, I just challenge each of us to do a heart check ourselves and let God speak to our hearts and ask, is this where I am? Is this in me? (laughs) Is this a sin I need to repent of? Because real freedom and joy comes as we're willing to look at what's true about us inside and then turn it over to the Lord and let him work on that. It's denial, it's hiding it that destroys our lives. So let's look at these six diseases of the heart, these blips on the EKG that he points out about Israel and ultimately about about us as well. He does it in six woes as the chapter goes on. As God wails, he woes for what he sees in the vineyard, the diseases of the vineyard. The first one is greed. Verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Now, we read this in our modern economy, American economy, and we think, well, that's the whole basis for our economy, right? I mean, (laughs) accumulating wealth. You buy more fields and you expand and expand until you own a whole lot of land and you can live isolated right in the middle of it. No one has to be around you. (laughs) That's our economy in America. This sort of often described as sort of this trickle down economics that, you know, as the wealth gets wealthier, hopefully it'll help everybody else. Unfortunately, it's not working, but, you know, it's a great theory. (laughs) But that economy, though it may be an American economy, version of economy, it is not God's economy. And that's what we need to see here. See, in God's economy, people sometimes went into debt. They had to sell parts of their land. And so other people did accumulate more land. But God had designated a year of Jubilee. Remember that? Year of Jubilee, every 50th year. And at the year of Jubilee, no matter what land had been bought and sold in those 50 years, it reverted back to the original family. So that everybody got to start over. Everybody got a clean slate. That way it prevented the poor from being so destitute they had nowhere to turn. They could always put their hope in, we'll get our land back and we can be a family again and we can grow. And so it was part of God's care for the whole community that it might be strong and healthy. But what we see going on in Israel is that at this point, they were ignoring the year of Jubilee. They, as far as we know, hadn't practiced it in years, if ever. So they were accumulating more and more lands and pushing the poor off the land and making them more and more destitute so that people were starving. It was difficult. And what was driving this? Greed. 
I need more. I need more. I always need just a little more. Driven to get more and more. (laughs) And you may think, well, I don't have very much, so I don't have a problem with greed. Well, that's not what greed's about. It isn't how much you have. It's a sense in your heart that I just need a little more to be fulfilled. You know, the famous quote from John D. Rockefeller, who was uh, more wealthy than Bill Gates in comparative terms, and he was asked one day, how much money does it take to make somebody happy? And he said, a little more, (laughs) a little more. You see, when greed is driving you, you never have enough. Mammon is a harsh taskmaster. It never will ultimately satisfy your heart. And as long as you give into it, you'll never be satisfied. As Jesus put it, you cannot serve God and money or things. You can't because you'll love the one and hate the other. They can never go together in the same heart. So the question for us, for you and me, as we do this spiritual EKG, as we're kind of taking a look at the blips on the on the readout, on the printout, is where are you today? Where am I today? And if we're honest, I think we'd have to say we're all tempted to this. There's not a single person here in this room that isn't tempted to greed because we live in a culture that drives it into our minds and our hearts constantly. We always run into at times, you know, if if I just had this, I'd be happy. And, you know, I run into that. I just think that once in a while, if I just had this, I'd be happier in my life. Maybe it's a nicer car or a nicer house or whatever it might be. Maybe it's some, the latest cell phone or smartphone or whatever it might be. But it creates, ultimately, it's a disease. In other words, it creates dis-ease. It takes away the ease in your life. It takes away contentment when you let greed live in your life. So I ask you and I ask me, is this in us? The, the second disease that he points out, the second blip on the EKG that he points out about Israel is the disease of self-indulgence. Listen to verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord. Nor do they consider the work of his hands. Notice the poetic description of somebody getting up early and drinking, partying late in the night. It's kind of this party attitude. I need to feel good all the time. It's this perspective of self-indulgence that I'm looking for the ways I can feel good because the world's not very comfortable, but there are ways that I can feel better. Pleasure, seeking pleasure, self-indulgence. But what Isaiah says is the tragedy of that is it makes you completely ignore God. You don't see what God's doing. You don't see how his hand is moving. You don't hear his voice because your ears are deaf, deafened by the sound of what the pleasure that you're seeking in your life. Pleasure distracts you from seeing God's work in your life. Now, you may say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I don't party. (laughs) I don't drink early in the morning, etc. But I think we should ask ourselves, do we zone out in front of the TV or the computer or the smartphone? Do we spend lots of time and energy dreaming about retirement, 
dreaming about our next vacation, being consumed by whatever it is that gives us the most pleasure, whatever that might be, and ignore the kingdom of God and how God wants us to to be used by him to serve him and others, whether it feels good or not. If so, if you're consumed by those things, just wanting to feel good and you let it live in your life, then then you'll be distracted from what God's doing and you'll end up unsatisfied in your life. It's become a disease that's stifling our fruitfulness. In verse 13, he goes on to say, Therefore, my people will go into exile for their lack of knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude is parched with thirst. When we seek and pursue pleasure, we end up thirsty and starved and famished because it only satisfies for a short time and then it consumes us and takes away our joy. We end up satisfied for a time, but it ends up stale and fruitless in the end. So greed, self-indulgence, these are some of the diseases in the vineyard that he's pointing out. Number three, the blip on the EKG, the third disease is what I call moral compromise, moral compromise. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him, let God make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. It's an interesting picture that Isaiah uses this here. It's like you've hitched yourself to sin and iniquity and tied it to you. And you're walking through life, but you're dragging it behind you. You see, I think it's a picture of moral compromise where we just compromise in little ways, but we tie ourselves to that. And, and it begins to drag us down and hold us back. Just these little sins, you know, little lies that we make. Ah, it's not a big deal. Or maybe, yeah, I'll cheat a little bit on my taxes. No one will know. We hide the problems with the car we're selling to get a higher price. We hold on to resentment and anger towards people, even though we know God tells us to forgive. We love gossip because it feels so good to pass on the juicy morsel about somebody else, even though deep down we know that's harmful and damages people and their reputations. And on and on, there's things that we, we do, we hold on to, we hitch ourselves to, and they just pull us back and we drag them along through our lives. One of the things that God has to keep bringing up in my life is, is just a, a judgmental attitude at times where I feel like I put others down in my own heart and my own thinking to try to make myself look good. It's, it's terrible. It's evil. But I at times hitch myself to that and it's difficult. It's bad. And it includes, as we see in verse 19, an attitude that he describes here, an attitude that, hey, God, come on, do something. Show up if you really care. You see, what makes us hitch ourselves to sin is we we see God doesn't do anything immediately. There's no immediate consequences, immediate results. So we feel like we're getting away with it. Come on, God, show up, do something. Of course, you won't. So we begin to compromise in little ways. We we let ourselves be hooked to things that destroy us. Like 
the people I've talked to, I've talked to several young people who have this attitude, who struggle perhaps with some kind of sin, whether it's lust or maybe same-sex desire, and they say, you know, I prayed to God to take it away, and he didn't, so he must want me to have it. See, that's, that's hooking yourself to it. God has made very clear he doesn't want you to have it, but maybe he wants you to struggle against it. That's why he doesn't take it away immediately, so you'll learn to trust him more and give it over to him and submit your life to him, even in the midst of the struggle. But we, we redefine it in a way that makes it okay. This was happening in Israel. And it easily happens to us. Ray Ortland says this. The challenge to the church is that this kind of thinking is creeping in among us as well. Studies show that Christian teenagers are almost as likely to cheat as our non-Christians. So also more than half of them think there are no absolute moral standards. Divorces among evangelicals now exceed the national norm. What has happened? We are slowly losing our grip on the idea that there is a creator whose character is absolutely consistent and who has created humans in his image. So we take on attitudes like, why shouldn't I grab all I can? The commercials tell me I owe it to myself. And after all, life is short. You only go around once and then the lights go out. Why shouldn't I lie? It pays off better than the truth does most of the time. And so we take on these attitudes and we compromise and we hitch ourselves to things that drag us down and away from God. The fourth disease that he goes on to, the fourth woe, the fourth blip on the EKG wants Israel to look at and us to look at, I call moral redefinition. Moral redefinition. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who turn the tables upside down morally, who call evil good and good evil. Now, isn't this right where our culture is all around us? We're surrounded by it. In our culture today, tolerance of evil is good, but moral conviction is considered an evil in our culture. It's evil in our culture to say homosexuality is a sin. It's good in our culture to condemn people who have biblical convictions. It's evil in our culture to say marriage is only designed for a man and a woman. It's good in our culture to say you can marry anyone you want of any gender. It's evil in our culture to restrict sex to marriage. It's good in our culture to express your sexuality with anyone you want, as long as it's consensual. And I could go on and on, right? But I'm just showing you how our culture has twisted things and called evil good and good evil. And my concern is that this moral redefinition is infiltrating the church as well. A recent survey by Barna said that 49% of Christian young people say viewing porn is not a sin. It's totally fine. It's just normal. It's okay. Many Christians are accepting sex outside of marriage, divorce, etc., as we've already heard, when these are clearly seen as wrong in Scripture. Ray Ortland again. In the end, unless the authority for moral behavior lies beyond ourselves, wrong will rapidly become right, right will become wrong, as we see happening apace in our society. 
So insistence that homosexual behavior is wrong becomes an act of hatred or fear. It's even come so far as to say the nuclear family is said to be one of the main sources of paranoia and oppression in our culture. Notice how we've twisted things in our world. And just like Israel, we at the, in the church too often are buying into moral redefinition of what is right and wrong. And so we need to ask ourselves, where am I in my convictions? Do I really believe there's a God who defines right and wrong and that my job, whether I like it or it makes sense to me or not, is to submit to him and follow him and trust him and what he says because he created us and he knows right and wrong? Or am I more and more taking on the idea that I need to define it for myself? And that really goes on to the next disease we see in the vineyard here in verse 21, which I call moral relativism. And you're outlined in your bulletin, it's moral relativism. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Now, this is sounds like just pride, right? Well, it is. It is. But it's this idea that I am clever. I am wise. I get to define right and wrong. You see, when you begin to have a, a moral redefinition, then you've got to find who's going to tell you what's right and wrong, and it becomes me. <laughs> and that's definitely our culture. We live in a culture of Moral relativism. I'm in charge. I determine what's right and wrong. Don't tell me what to do. Moral relativism means that may be fine for you, but don't try to impose your values on me. I get to define my own values. I saw a bumper sticker just this week that said, do no harm. Do whatever you want. You see, what it's saying is that the only value that matters is, yes, it's important you don't harm other people. But then you can do whatever you want. But my question is, how do you define what harm is? Who's going to determine that, what harm really looks like? It makes me in charge of what I do and whether it harms anybody. And actually, God says that sin always does harm. It does harm to you. Even secret sins, even Behind closed door sins does harm to you, it does harm to those around you, and it does harm to the family of God as a whole. And ultimately, it harms God and grieves his heart. So moral relativism, saying the truth is relative and I can determine right and wrong, does great damage. And we have to ask ourselves, is, is, do I do that? Am I trying to determine right and wrong myself instead of submitting to a God who has told me what is right and wrong. The final, I know this is heavy, this is hard, but it's important we look inside once in a while, right? The final one, the final disease of the vineyard, the final blip on the EKG as we take this heart check is I call injustice. Injustice. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe. And take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. You could really see a progression in these six things if you look at it. And I think this is one in which injustice has taken over. The heroes in culture he's describing here become those who are the hardest partiers. <laughs> or who can get away with the most selfish activity at the cost of others. They don't care how it affects anybody else. 
It's all about them. And so they live for injustice and getting what they can for themselves. Whether it's avoiding taxes or building an empire or they can stick it to the man the best way or they don't trust authority. And we exalt those kinds of people more and more in our culture as morally things begin to fall apart. We have to ask ourselves, is, uh, are we forgetting the poor and the needy and, the, and those who are hurting in our culture because we're so caught up in making ourselves, building our own nest or pleasuring ourselves? So Isaiah gives Israel and us a spiritual EKG. And I just encourage you to really ask, how am I doing? How are you doing? Maybe not as healthy as we thought. <laughs> so what's the path to healing? What is the radical therapy that will deal with these things that are in our hearts? What's the path to healing? Well, number one, face the diseases of your heart. Face them. Scripture makes it really clear that hidden sin is what begins to destroy you. But when you bring it out in the open and you confess it openly, then Jesus is able to deal with it. And I really encourage you, if you struggle in any of these areas or there's other things in your heart that you've been hiding, then I encourage you to confess it to the Lord and to at least one other person so that you can begin to be set free. Because James said, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. We need to do that. So number one, face the diseases of the heart. The second in the path to healing is to turn to God in repentance. Turn to him to re in repentance so you can be forgiven and be set free. Now, we all love 1 John 1, 9, right? Let me read it to you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an incredible truth. We can come to him and confess our sins, and he will forgive us because of the cross, because of what Jesus did. But let's not forget the verse before and after that. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice the context there. It's saying, look, we need to admit we have sin. We all struggle with these things. But if we do, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us. But we've got to turn to him and repentance. Admit we're a mess so that he can heal us and cleanse us. And then third, face the diseases of the heart. Turn to God in repentance. And third, if you really want the path to healing... Fall in love with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Why do I say that? Again, every one of these that we've talked about, these six diseases, are really symptoms of a misplaced love. We're looking to other things besides him for life. But when we turn to him and find life in him, then we find what our hearts have been made for and what we've longed for all along. Let me read verse 1 again of verse of chapter 5. You see the heart of Isaiah. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard. Isaiah calling Yahweh his beloved. Isaiah was one of the toughest guys in scripture, I think. He prophesied. He was a prophet that spoke difficult words to a whole nation 
For over 40 years, he just kept preaching truth and people didn't respond well. He experienced all kinds of hurt and rejection. But he was a man's man. He hung in there. He was tough. What allowed him to hang in there, though, I think, is because he had grown in intimacy with his God in a way that he delighted in him as his greatest joy. He loved the Lord his God with his whole heart. You see, we were made for Jesus. And the best way to give up these other things isn't to fight against them, but to fall in love with Jesus, to spend time with him. Not just, yeah, we worship together on Sunday morning, that's great, but to to spend time with him, praying to him and getting to know him and focusing on his awesomeness and how great he is. That's how you fell in love with your spouse, right? You focus on them and you thought about all their great attributes. We can do that with Jesus and focus on him and fall in love with him. And it will set us free from these other false loves that pull our hearts in other directions. We're made for intimacy, brothers and sisters. But we're made especially and first and foremost for intimacy with Jesus. Remember the greatest commandment? Work hard to do the right thing. Right? No. But that's how we live our Christian life a lot of times, isn't it? No, the greatest commandment is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Learn to make him the center of your desires, the center of your heart. And if you do that, you will begin to be a vineyard that's bearing fruit that will delight the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage this is that speaks, though it's 2,800 years old, it speaks to us today, to our very hearts, and reveals who we are. And Lord, may we openly declare and confess to you our struggles with these areas so that you can cleanse them. But most of all, Lord, may you become the center of the desires of our heart that we might bear fruit in your vineyard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.